0: And you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash slash film. Hello
1: everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, November 8th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film in TV news and get some life advice from Chris. This is Slash Home Editor in Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. Let's jump into the news before we get to the life advice. Uh, We only have a little bit of news today, but let's start off with this unmade Stanley Kubrick script, which is going up for auction. Uh, Ben, you wrote up this for SlashLim.com. What what do we know? Yeah, in 1956,
0: Stanley Kubrick, uh, the director of movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Shining, uh, he co-wrote a screenplay for a movie called Burning Secret, which is an adaptation of a novella. That actually has been made into a movie twice already, most recently in nineteen eighty eight. But uh, Kubrick co-wrote a version of the script, and it was thought to be lost forever. And uh, only this past summer did somebody dig it up and and actually track down uh, the finished version. And it's like over a hundred pages. it's typed. They say that it could actually be made into a movie, you know, in its current form if somebody, has the balls to do something like that. Uh, But now the script is actually going to be going up for auction uh, on November 20th, later this month, and it's expected to sell for around $20,000. So... Uh, the question is, is a filmmaker going to buy it and would somebody actually be interested in, in taking on the challenge of making, of trying to finish uh, Kubrick's long lost work? Um, I mean, obviously this has happened before with uh, artificial intelligence, with AI, the movie that Spielberg directed, but it was a slightly different situation there. Those guys actually knew each other well. And we friends and, and, you know, would, would communicate often. Uh, and Spielberg sort of like took the baton from Kubrick. This would be a whole different kind of thing because the movie version that he was trying to make was essentially uh, nixed by MGM back in the 50s. And he uh, just never got around to, uh, you know, exploring the project any further or making it later in his career. So, um, yeah, that, that's basically the gist of what we know right now.
1: This is interesting to me on a number of factors. There are so many scripts in Hollywood that get written that never get made. And a lot of them are I mean, I'm not going to say a lot of them are very good, but there are quite a few out there that are very interesting and I would love to see made, you know, into a film, but it, like they fall into that, you know, development hell bucket and never seem to ever get resurrected. Um and also you know, there are filmmakers like uh, John Hughes is notorious for, I, I believe he could write a script in a no- matter of days. And uh, I think his, like, family says that there's, uh, I could be getting the numbers wrong, but there might even be, like, a 100- hundred Un, uh, you know unmade John Hughes scripts that they have you know in their library I, w- I would love to see someone you know dig through there there must be some gold there right like uh not every unmade script is bad like ooh, Jacob would you like to see this unmade Stanley Kubrick movie even though we, we don't really know too much about it would you, would you like to see it brought to reality
2: no, I think you should let the past die. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's a good screenplay. I'm sure it's interesting. Anything Kubrick touched is worthy of study. But it's reached a point where it's an artifact, and it's it's kind of thing where if it's going to be shot today, it's going to need work. It's going to need another writer to come in and clean it up and you know make it function as, as a modern screenplay for modern filmmakers and modern productions. And why even court disaster by having somebody else come on to touch up Kubrick. Just have it sell for a lot of money and leave it at that.
1: Okay, then maybe a a uh, coffee table book with the script and maybe if they can find some of his concept art and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly what this should be. I mean, Kubrick has enough unmade projects to do a, several coffee table books. I mean, his unmade Napoleon movie that he worked on for years and years inspired its own massive book about how it never came together and that's a really fascinating book if you ever yeah. find it. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like you're just. Movie making has changed, and a screenplay is a blueprint. I mean, the screenplay, the screenplay is important, but it's still one of many moving parts. So I think trying to make the lost Dylan Kubrick movie would feel disingenuous at best because Kubrick is no longer involved at all. And, we're lo- and he's not building the house, he just designed the house half a century ago. Yeah.
1: I, I, I just wonder, like, okay, Ben gonna post this question to you you know there's all these john hughes scripts that i I, I said are out there like i don't think anybody's looking to you know to watch the unmade uh john hughes classic but like there must be some good material to mine there somewhere right yeah i think so i wonder if
0: maybe you could do like a um like an inspired, you know, like use that as like a story jumping off point. Uh, if somebody were able to, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to like yeah. get permission from the Hughes estate and stuff like that. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm sure there's with a guy as prolific as that and as, um you know, iconic uh, a writer, especially as that. I feel like, yeah, there's tons of good stuff, probably just sitting in those scripts, little scraps of ideas that could be fleshed out and, and maybe adapted into, Uh, different things in the modern day, but I am not sure (laughs) if 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 it's practical to assume that anybody would ever actually get that opportunity.
2: But John Hughes also wrote Baby's Day Out and Flubber, (laughs) so let's not act like everything (laughs) in that library is probably great.
1: Oh, I'm not (laughs) saying it is, but, like, let's say... 10% Ten percent of it is. I mean, I think it's worth exploration. And I mean, we live in a day and age that we're getting the ugly doll movie. So, oh no, you don't bring that up. <laughs> I, th- I think there's better alternatives, right, <laughs> than the ugly doll movie. Uh, but let, let's move on to an exclusive story that we broke today, and that involves the casting of the Watchmen TV series over at HBO. Jacob, uh, you wrote this whole thing up for the site. What do we know?
2: Uh, yeah, well, what we learned, and this is very exciting, is we know who Jeremy are Actually, I, I should clarify. Uh,
1: why don't you tell us about this Watchmen TV series first, yes. and then tell us what we learned.
2: Yes. Uh, for those of you who haven't been following this project, uh, Damon Lindelof of Lost and The Leftovers is bringing Watchmen to HBO. But this is not a adaptation of the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons comic series from the 80s. This is set in the same universe, sort of a sequel, but... Uh, 30, 40 years after the events of the comic. So it's not a sequel to Zack Snyder's movie. It is not a remake of the comic or an adaptation of the comic. It's a spiritual successor, a loose sequel, uh, a continuation of the universe, however you want to call it. But it's intended to be a companion rather than a straight-up adaptation. Uh, So with that said, we learned two key things about the show. We learned who Jeremy Irons is playing. We learned of his casting a few months ago. We learned that Gene Smart has joined the cast. So we'll take these one at a time. Uh, the first one, uh, Jeremy Irons, we've learned is playing Adrian Veit, or Veit, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, uh, aka uh, Ozyman, uh, Ozymandias from the original comic. You may remember from the comic or from Zack Snyder's uh, film adaptation that he is the smartest man in the world, an industrialist, a millionaire, he's sort of a um, he, sort of a Steve Jobs, if Steve Jobs was a superhero type, who, uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the Watchmen comic, fakes an alien invasion uh, to kill thousands of people in New York City, but as a result of his actions, end the Cold War, end the threat of nuclear war, <laughs> and, and save humanity from itself. So, and all the surviving superheroes and the Watchmen find themselves with this moral dilemma of, we just achieved world peace through <laughs> genocide, Would it, like, and I have, to li- I have to live with that decision. And so the idea is they were catching up with Ozymandias, or Adrian, 40 years later, uh, and what what does that do to a person when he's been sitting with that guilt or that, that that troublesome question under his skin for so long and I love the idea of Jeremy Irons playing him he's such a distinguished, brilliant actor so good at playing um, creepy, troubled men <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I really love this and one thing I'll bring up before I toss it off to you, Peter because I want to hear your thoughts on this is that we saw some early set photos when they are filming the pilot from before the show was even picked up I featured newspaper headlines saying that Adrian Veidt had died um so i'm wondering if this is going to be like a flashback heavy character like we maybe see him throughout his life as he grapples with the fact that he saved the world at such a great cost um or if maybe he's he's faked his death but either way i think that um getting nailing an oscar winner like this for this role is such cool casting what do you think peter
1: well, I I'm not as huge of a Watchmen fan as you are, Jacob, so I'm probably the <laughs> worst person to ask here. But I uh you know, I did did read the comic back in the day and I did uh watch the Zack Snyder film, which I actually enjoy more than most, I think. I, I know they it's kind of divisive. Um, especially and it sounds like they're using the ending of the comic and not the movie in in this continuation, right?
2: Uh or- yeah, there's a giant alien squid in the in the comic that they uh, do not use in the movie. Uh, so it seems like this is very much a direct sequel to the comic, as opposed to the uh, Zack Snyder movie. But what I think
1: is actually more interesting is this uh, this casting that we are we are exclusively reporting.
2: Gene uh, Smart, uh, who is she playing? Gene uh, Smart is playing a character named uh, Agent Blake, an FBI agent tasked with hunting down vigilantes. So as you may remember from the from Watchmen, uh, superheroes and vigilantes are banned. Uh, either they've hung up their capes entirely, or the few of them that still worked after the ban worked for the government as black ops agents, as you know, spies, doing dirty government work. So it makes sense that years later, the band would still be on, and there would be FBI agents tasked with doing it. But here's where it gets interesting. Um, Agent Blake shares a name with Edward Blake, the comedian, a uh, character from the original Watchmen um, uh, comic series. And he died before the events of that series. He's only seen flashbacks, but his death triggers so many um major events throughout that um comic his death is the the triggering moment (laughs) so i so gene smart's character his fbi agent is either a tribute to that character a a, a winking nod to fans or she is somehow connected uh to edward blake in some way Um, a long lost family member Uh, and i know our, our pet theory right now is just a spitballing is that this is Laurie from the original comic, grown up, uh, following in her father's work, because Silk Spectre, uh, the superhero from the original comic, learns late in that story that uh, Edward Blake is her long-lost secret father. Uh, So that's just us spitballing. All we know is that she's playing Asian Blake, FBI agent, she's trying superheroes. Jean Smart is, like, TV royalty, three-time Emmy winner. She's on (laughs) Legion, Fargo, 24. So it's really, really not a really big uh, name, not a really smart piece of casting, and whether she's playing just an FBI agent or a character from the Watchmen mythos, um, I'm excited to see what she does here, too.
1: See, I'm just so weirded out by the series. Like, I I am a fan of Damon Lindelof. I am a fan of what he's done at HBO. I love HBO original series. Uh, I even like Watchmen, uh, but Watchmen, to me, seems like such a niche comic book, you know, uh, comic book fanatics love it, but the general public really have no knowledge of it outside of the Zack Snyder film. And I'm kind of of wondering Ben or Chris, uh what you guys think. Like are are people even gonna understand what's going on here? Uh Chris, why don't you weigh in first?
3: Uh I think the fact that um it's it's separating itself from the comic by being a sequel is gonna really work in its favor. Like I I don't think it's gonna be like constant Easter eggs. Like, look, remember when this happened in the comic? I think it's probably going to stand on its own. Based on that statement that Lindelof put out where you know he was yeah. saying all the other stuff is canon and it already happened, this is a new thing. So I think that's going to work in its favor. And that's what has me excited about that this series. Like, If it was just going to be yet another straight adaptation of the comic, I'd probably really have very little interest in this. But I like the idea that he's doing a show set in this world. I think that's an interesting approach to this and it's probably the best way to do it because there's, there's really nothing more that can be said about the comic that hasn't been said already at this point.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. I think that it's, it's so cool. I'm very much looking forward to this because of that. I think it, like the idea of, um, of not doing another straight remake and, and like uh, applying a whole new set of characters and creativity and stuff like that to this uh well-established universe is the kind of thing that i wish hollywood would do more often you know like we are always talking about um like this is like sort of the perfect blend between the artistic pursuits and and uh, creative pursuits of somebody like damon Lindelof, who is an ambitious storyteller and the like business uh needs and necessities of a company like hbo who you know would i'm sure love to pull in people based on property that has a bunch of name recognition so they're sort of getting the best of both worlds it's like the name recognition but a story that nobody knows exactly what's going to happen that's really exciting to me
1: yeah i mean i i trust in lindelof that he can you know write this for an audience that probably isn't you know fans of the Watchmen comic i guess my concern is will people even try to watch this you know thinking that like oh you know i you know i didn't really love that watchmen movie from Zack Snyder i didn't read the comic and this like this whole world that looks weird with these you know the the costumes look kind of strange and i don't know i i i'm, I'm just wondering if i guess if the general population will be sucked in but you know they watched The Leftovers, which is a very weird, uh, you know, story in its own. So I guess, uh, you know, HBO audiences are are ready to, you know, dig in a little bit. So, um, but let, let's move on to Johnny Quest. They have announced that they are making a Johnny Quest movie with the director of the Lego Batman movie. Chris, you're up for the site. What do we know?
3: Uh yeah. So Warner Brothers has been trying to make a Johnny quest movie since at least the nineties. And at one point in 1995, Richard Donner was going to direct a movie with Fred Decker, the guy who directed uh, the monster squad, writing the script Uh, that never happened. Then in uh, the early two thousands, the rock and Zach Efron were going to star in a live action movie that never happened. And then uh, around 2016, Robert Rodriguez became attached to direct And he was supposed to kick off this whole uh, Johnny Quest franchise that Warner Brothers was hoping would be like the new Harry Potter for them. And that too never happened. Uh, But now um, uh, Chris McKay, who directed the Lego Batman movie is in charge of the film. It's not clear if he's going to use the script that was written for the Rodriguez movie, or if they're going to start fresh, but that's where it is now. He's going to be directing the Johnny Quest movie and, We'll see if it actually happens, because, like I said, they've tried this multiple times, and there's always a chance this won't get
1: off the ground either. Is there anybody here who loves the Johnny Quest series?
2: I loved it back in the day. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm more in love with the iconography than with the series itself. I love the globe-trotting '60s set, you know, colorful, two-fisted adventure stories. Uh, I love that aesthetic. Like, right? I can't say I have a genuine affection for Johnny Quest, but I am ready for that aesthetic to make it come back, especially if they want, especially if they make it a period piece. You know, shoot it like Peyton Reed shot *Down with Love*, like it actually was made in that in that period, and I'd be super down for Johnny Quest. Um, is but,
1: is Chris yeah. McKay the person to do that?
2: I don't know. I don't know Chris. I, I feel like The like Batman movie is really lovely. It's optimistic and wonderful, and, and like hopeful in a way. I think Johnny Quest should be, because uh, as Chris writes in his article, the last thing we need is a grim and gritty Johnny Quest movie. That sounds like a nightmare. It, 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 it's like, uh, it's like it'd be like making a grim and gritty Superman. We all yeah. saw how that turned out. Uh, but I want to know if uh, Ben has any thoughts on this. Ben, does Johnny Quest mean anything to you? I actually, uh, so I watched a handful
0: of the Hanna Barbera cartoons, but. Um, I, I, I feel almost embarrassed to even admit this to you guys, but I watched this show called The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, which came out in like the late 90s. And it was looking back on it, you know, I, I thought it was really cool at the time, but looking back on it, I'm sure it was like, <laughs> uh a very very ridiculous because it was all about like johnny quest and virtual reality which i can't imagine i remember um, this, this was terrible. Yeah, it, it was it, i i mean i loved it at the time that's all i have to say and i i guess i have to embrace that and and admit to it but um yeah I, i'm sort of like you jacob i feel like the aesthetic is really cool i'm just not sure if that story you know like they've got Johnny Quest's best friend is a kid named Haji and like that played way differently in you know in the 80s or whatever than it would in 2019. So I'm I'm just not sure if um if like the like like you're saying the aesthetic is really cool but I don't know if like the the politics of the show or like the some of the um I don't know the, the finer points are going to translate very well uh to a movie. I I wonder if that's some of the stuff that people have gotten hung up on over the years.
1: Hmm. Well, I would assume that they would have to polish (laughs) those bits if it's going to be, you know, a family friendly adaptation for, you know, modern audiences today. Um, But let's move on to ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, who, uh, you know, you know, as the people who make the special effects for the Star Wars movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, like all, all like the big budget uh films uh they are now gonna take a step into the world of the small screen into tv ben tell us about it
0: yeah. So ILM has launched a brand new division called ILM TV, which as the name suggests, uh, means that it's going to be stepping into the world of streaming and episodic TV. So, uh, the first two shows on ILM TV's docket are the sci-fi Superman prequel series Krypton, which is currently in its second season and the upcoming live action Star Wars show, the Mandalorian, which Jon Favreau is director er, is uh, developing for uh, Disney play, which is the new uh, Disney streaming service. So, um, that's basically the the big news here is that uh, ILM has started its own TV branch. And, of course, the new Star Wars show is going to be one of their first big projects that all makes sense because ILM was basically founded because of the first Star Wars movie in 1975 when George Lucas was, was – uh, was, you know, for, first developing the very first Star Wars, he he sort of got that uh, up and running under the Lucasfilm banner, and obviously now Lucasfilm is under the Disney banner, and uh, it's all sort of in the family now. Yeah,
1: that, that, that is cool. Not that ILM hasn't done TV stuff in the past, uh, which they have, uh, but it's interesting that they're going to, you know, have a bigger foothold into uh, TV, and I'm sure... I'm sure they, you know, they haven't announced any other projects, but I'm sure like these Marvel TV series that uh, I guess haven't even been formally announced by Disney. I'm sure ILM is probably going to be doing the the visual effects for those as well, which is kind of cool. But let's move on to our last final story before we get to the life advice. And uh, that is uh, that Pacific Rim is getting an anime, which is coming to Netflix. Jacob, what do we know?
2: Yeah, one of the cool things about uh, Netflix is that it reaches an international audience. It means they're creating uh, shows and movies for people who, you know, aren't just Americans. And that means uh, animes based on popular um, popular movies and TV shows. In this case, uh, Pacific Rim. It's a new series. Um, I'm going to read the synopsis here. Uh, This original anime series follows two siblings, an idealistic teen boy and his naive younger sister, who are forced to pile an abandoned Jaeger across a hostile landscape in a desperate attempt to find their missing parents. Um, That sounds cool. (laughs) That sounds like more uh, Pacific Rim. And even though I wasn't a big fan of the newer movie, I think there's a lot of promise in this world. And as uh, as, uh, uh, HT, Hoi Bui, writes in her article on Slash Film, the one issue here and something that I'd be curious to hear some more seasoned anime fans' thoughts on is that Pacific Rim is a a live-action embodiment of so much classic mecha anime. It's, so it's thrilling to see in live action, these concepts that have been in anime for decades. So by bringing it back into anime, are we losing something special? Or would it be more of the same? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I'll check this out because I like Pacific Rim. Uh, we'll see though. I guess the other big news is that Altered Carbon, the Netflix series, is getting a anime spinoff that will be set in the same universe, along with a few other series. Um, let's see. I, I apologize in advance. Uh, Japanese uh listeners, uh, Tressay, Yasuke, and Kagaster of an Insect Cage um, <laughs> from, creator, let's see, from creators um, Koichi Chigara is, beyond, is behind um, Kagaster of an Insect Cage, and I can't find the creators of the other two, but yeah, it, uh, and this is not the first time Netflix has made anime shows. They have quite a few up there right now. They're finishing up their Godzilla anime trilogy. Um, but yeah, I, I love that even though I'm not the biggest anime fan in the world, um, I I, I know my layman's of it. I I know the basics. Um, I'm thrilled that they use an audience for this and that they're like branching out and trying all kinds of international productions that can appeal to people from all stripes. But what do you guys think? Would you watch an anime Pacific Rim?
1: Well, the, the most appealing thing to me in Guillermo del Toro's original Pacific Rim was the world building that he created with that movie. And I feel like Uh, I would like to see it from like a small, you know, like this ground level of like a story with kids and a Jaeger. I think that's uh, a lot more interesting to me than kind of from the up high government kind of uh, save the world. I'm kind of getting tired of like these big budget, you know, blockbusters all being about the world being at stake. I I, I want more, you know, I want more uh, personal uh personal stakes, I want more back to the futures, if you will um Ben Chris, do you have any thoughts on this one?
0: Uh, I'm not a huge anime guy just like I, I don't know I'm you know the star wars uh resistance is that what it's called the new sort of anime style star wars yeah. show like just the look of that doesn't really do anything for me um I don't know I haven't heard great things so i i'm not sure if i would go out of my way to check this out honestly uh i know ht would probably slap me if she heard me say that but <laughs> um i don't know i chris what do you think
3: no it's not for me it's a no from chris
1: <laughs> um
3: i am not picking you guys anime.
1: are I, completely discounting an entire medium of storytelling I
3: know. well i just that's... i i can never get into at it like every time i see it uh, there's just something about the animation that turns me i can't like put my finger on it but i've I've never really gotten into it for some reason you don't
1: even like the like studio ghibli stuff like the miyazaki
3: I, I this is where I get punched where I admit I've never seen any of those movies and I because I, I'm like right. overwhelmed and I don't know where to start so I, I'm well, not gonna write off
0: the entire thing because I watched uh, I think it was oh, what, what is the na- your name uh, last year and I really enjoyed yeah. that on HT's recommendation so I'm not like uh, I'm not writing off anime as an entire medium but just like <laughs> the uh, the combination of of the style that I'm not the visual style that I'm not always enthralled with and Pacific Rim which. After that second movie, uh, I don't know if I'm interested in any more Pacific Rim ever again. Um, it just doesn't necessarily appeal to me.
1: Chris, I feel like there's a new segment in here where, like, HT recommends an anime for you to watch, and then you guys have a conversation about it.
3: I feel like... I think the Jacob is doing something with that, or, or, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that. I don't know.
2: I'll, I'll, I'll tease some of the Slash Film sauces being made. HT and I are developing a... Um, Jacob and HT watch anime thing It which is ah. gonna be a, a written a written series. Written series. But we we'll be considering making it a podcast instead. We're we're still figuring that out, so we'll see. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to Advice Corner.
3: It's, advice Corner. it's advice Corner
1: Okay, so before we get into the the new bit of advice. Let's talk about some reaction we got to last week. Last week, uh, Chris gave some advice on when it is all right to show your child uh, maybe uh, questionable movies. Uh, and uh, we got a couple of responses for that. We got Gabe from Richmond who wrote in that uh, he, he, the whole conversation uh, kind of unjarred a memory loose for him. Uh, his mother took him and his brother to see Ghost when he was nine and his brother was seven. Uh, Ghost being the movie with Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore and Whoopi Goldberg. Uh At this point, he had uh, seen all the Star Wars movies, Indiana Jones, Gremlins, uh, but for some reason, ghosts scared the shit out of him because of the, quote, frank display of death. It just terrified me. For what seemed like a month, I tried to sleep with the lights on because the deaths in the movie haunted me. Eventually, I got over it, but damn, it broke my nine-year-old brain for a few months. So, uh... I guess I wanted to ask you guys if you had any, like, instances in your childhood of seeing a movie that might not even be, like, a scary movie. Like, Ghost is not something I would think, like, is a movie where you can't show a child, but it kind of uh, deeply disturbed you or scared you in some way.
2: I'll go ahead and jump in first here. Um, Sorry, Chris, to hijack your advice column with my own ranting. Um, But – I know I mentioned in the podcast in the past that the ending of Indian Jones and Last Crusade, where the Nazi chooses poorly and turns into a skeleton, was burnt in my brain for years. Like, I could not watch that scene for years and years and years. The movie I otherwise, like, wore out the VHS tape watching. But I also was very traumatized by the strange fiery clouds that hide the UFOs in Independence Day. Uh, not the not uh, the aliens, not the actual UFOs, but only those early scenes with the fiery clouds that hide the UFOs. That gave me nightmares for years and years and years and years, like way longer than I care to admit.
1: Were you afraid that the clouds outside were going to turn to fire?
2: I think so. Like I would like look out the sky like wh- before I went to bed to make sure there weren't fire clouds hiding aliens. It's like I think a UFO I could deal with. Like like that's a UFO. I know what that is. But if there's a fire cloud above the sky, who knows what's in that thing? That was very upsetting. And the last one, uh, Ernest Scared Stupid, those trolls. The trolls in Ernest Scared Stupid are are legit scary and haunted me for a long time. In a movie that's otherwise incredibly silly and not scary at all. So those are some quick ones, the movies that aren't scary and still really upset young me.
1: See, I'm having a hard time of thinking of movies that aren't scary that terrified me. There were a lot of movies as a child that kind of terrified me. I have talked about in the past, uh, what is it, Ghoulies, where the monster comes out of the toilet. I was afraid to uh sit on the toilet for for a long time after that and uh, the gate where uh there's this eye that appears and the uh, the main character's hand that like terrified me for a long time as well and i think i've also mentioned uh skeletor from the masters universe uh live action movie was haunting my dreams I, i guess that's probably the best example because that wasn't supposed to be like horrific that was kind of supposed to be kind of a family uh, blockbuster of some kind. Uh, Chris, you mentioned one last week,
3: right? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mentioned the 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 large Marge scene in the first Pee Wee Herman movie <laughs> terrified me as a child to the point where I couldn't like watch it. Like I, I had to close my eyes when it came on. I
0: can't think of one that I watched as a kid, but I watched uh, Return to Oz for the first time this year. And the <laughs> the imagery in that movie, that's a good example of something that's not necessarily like a quote unquote scary movie that I think a lot of kids might have seen. And the imagery in that movie is like terrifying. There's so much weird, freaky stuff in there that I was like freaked out as a 30 something year old. I can't imagine maybe watching that movie as a kid. I'm I'm sure we have a bunch of listeners who, who may have caught that and been scarred for life. Yeah,
1: Um, Kevin H. writes in that uh, that Chris gave good advice on the show. Uh, The part you missed is that no matter what you show a child, be ready to answer any questions. Sometimes it can be a great to teach a lesson, even if just an uncle that they see once uh, once a week. For example, the movie Eighth Grade, even though it's R, it's rated R. It's a great tool to educate kids, this person says. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think we said last week that none of us have children, so we probably don't think in the proper way of uh, showing children films. Jacob, you weren't on last week, actually. So briefly, uh, what would be your line of like where what to show children?
2: I think it's entirely about knowing your kids, knowing what the limits are. I feel like the idea of... Uh... No, growing up, um, my mom had certain lines. Certain things were allowed, certain things weren't. And at times it was frustrating when I was young. But I realized it's because she knew her kids, she knew what would bother us. She knew where our limits were, and she knew what, what questions <laughs> we would end up asking. Um, she didn't like hold extremely tight reins over what we watched, but she was careful. And she, when I was like you know eight or nine years old, she realized okay, it's maybe it's time to watch Predator, but I'll watch it with them. Or maybe it's time to watch Terminator, but I'll watch it with them. And then. As the years went on, she would able to you know, give us a lot more leeway by watching how we responded. And I want to respond to Kevin H.'s uh, email directly because a friend of mine, another uh, Austinite, who has uh, two young sons, told me a story, and I, I think it's an amazing story for this question. But how he put on Big Hero 6 for his um, toddler, thinking, oh, he'll enjoy the superheroes, enjoy the animation, have a great time. But there's a moment in Big Hero 6 where a seemingly good character bet- betrays the hero and turns out to be the villain. And his young son did not understand the concept of betrayal. He had never seen a good person pretend. Oh, sorry, a bad person pretend to be good before. The concept that a bad person could be hiding in plain sight was so new to him that it upset him to the point where he started crying. So he actually had to sit down with his young son and talk about how how bad people pretend to be good so they, they hide in society. Had to have the conversation from Big Hero Six. So Kevin H is like really on point here. This is something that parents should definitely consider.
1: It's interesting. Your your life advice is, is almost the same as what Chris gave last week. Uh, but let's move on to some new life advice. Uh, Nicholas E. from Chicago Heights, Illinois writes in that he is an aspiring filmmaker. Uh, probably like a good portion of your listeners, I spend a lot of t- free time writing and outlining full-length script. Uh, Within the past few years, I've co-written and co-directed a short film uh, with a great team of actors and crew, and I directed a documentary I made uh, made for a loved one. Since then, my main collaborator has made the move out west to pursue his passion in filmmaking by going to school. And I guess my question is, with all the risks that it comes from moving across the country, finding a new job, finding a place to live, etc., do you think it's something worth doing, or do you think I should stay at, stay home, focus on my writing, and try to find a group out here in Illinois to work on a full-length film with? I'm, I'm not completely sold on film school, but I'm not opposed to it. My main concern is being able to afford the cost of living while trying to pursue my very costly goals in Los Angeles. So, um... Chris, you have already answered the question about film school, uh, yes. and I don't think we need to go back into that. But do you think a filmmaker who is is this dead set on you know become you know making it in Hollywood? Do do they need to move to Hollywood?
3: Uh, I don't think it's a hundred percent necessary. But if you can do it, you should. At the same time, don't think you know just cuz you're in Hollywood you're you're up, you're finally going to get your foot in the door cuz there are a million people who go to Hollywood and end up, you know, waiting tables. So don't, you know, don't think you're going to instantly make it, but I do think that, you know, as they say that's where the action is and you know, if you're young enough and if you have the ability to do it, do it like I wish when I was younger I had moved to New York City because it would come in handy a lot now in my career you know writing about movies but I can't really do it now cuz I you know I have a <laughs> I have a wife and a house and a mortgage and I can't you know just uproot and move into an apartment in New York City but when I was younger I probably could have done that and I wish I had but you know that's either here or there but if you can do it if you can get all the way to California and if you can find a place to live and if you can pull that off, I would say do it, but don't do it if <laughs> it's it's like 100% impossible. Don't risk it all for that. It's it's not, you know, you, you can probably get your foot in the door some other way, but if you can get to California, go for it. I think it's kind
1: of important to push yourself outside of your, your hometown at some point, be it, you know, college or, you know, moving away for a few years. I feel like that, like what you're saying, you know, it does give you – a greater perspective of, you know, life in this world. Um, But also I'll I'll give you a quick uh, answer from my point of view, because before I started Slash Film, I wrote and directed a movie, a feature film called Escaping Reality. I've written about it on the site. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, But I did that in a small town of Natick, Massachusetts, and uh, it was much easier to find locations for free. People to act in the movie for free, uh, crew for free. Uh, you know, it. It when you move to Los Angeles, the uh, you will find a lot of people that want to be in movies. But like you know, every you know diner is going to charge you a ton of money for the location. You're going to have to get permits. Don't even like you know. There's no way to grill it. Uh, you're going to get. You're going to have much better talent here in terms of acting and, you know, even behind the camera. Uh, but uh, it might be harder to, you know, get those people. It might be easier to do it in your hometown. But on the other side of that, uh, you know, I, in the end of the day, I was not very happy with the feature film I ended up making. And uh, it's, uh, you know, partially my fault as as a, as a writer. I don't think it was... Um, A a great story but on the other hand i i I, you know we the whole team was you know not a team of experienced people in la so i i I think you know it's a two-sided coin uh jacob do you have any thoughts on
2: this yeah i mean as chris said the industry is in los angeles the industry is hollywood and if you can get there it's where you go uh i went to film school and I weighed heavily. Do I go to LA or not? And by that, by my final year of school, I was starting to realize, oh, I'm not very good at making movies. And my career started shifting. Um, but I know people who made the move and they're out there, you know, nose to the ground trying to get work. And, you know, it, it can take years and years and years to make it happen. Uh, just today, somebody I follow on Twitter, a writer, talked about how he's been in Los Angeles for 15 years and his second movie is finally being made. Uh, and he's lucky at that. So if you can get there and you can afford it, and you can be happy there. Yes, I mean it, it. It is where you should be. It is the industry. It is where the talent is. But there are lots of people working, you know, outside, um, making smaller stuff, scrappier stuff. I mean, if you want to stay in Illinois, you probably have to hold down a day job somewhere while you make your movies. That's just how it works. Um, I mean, in Austin, Austin has. Um Austin film community is a little, little luckier. There's a lot of production houses here, a lot of studios, a lot of stuff is shot here, a lot of indie stuff is shot here. So I know a lot of people making livings as editors and post-production people, uh, as um, people working on set. No, very few actual directors make a living here, but lots of crew do. So if you don't want to move uh, to Los Angeles, definitely consider looking at your area or adjacent areas where – you can get jobs on crews because you're not going to make a living as a writer director right away. You're going to have to either get a day job or work crew. So that's, that's what I'll add.
1: Ben, what is your advice?
0: Uh, I would say make your feature where you are and maybe make five features where you are. (laughs) And if you're still interested at that point, then you come to LA with a portfolio of work that you've done and you know, you can remake some of that same stuff if the script is great or whatever and you have you you don't think that it's necessarily up to par. But at least you'll come to L.A. with something in your hand instead of just being one of the million people who show up and just say, hey, give me an opportunity because I'm here. Like, that's not good enough anymore. That may have been good enough back in the early days of Hollywood. But I feel like, you know, you've got to have the experience and that that maybe is arguably more important than where you are at, at this point
1: in your career chris do you have any final thoughts on the matter
3: uh i do think uh, well, what ben says is a good idea i mean I, maybe i was just presuming this fellow this individual had a portfolio already but if you don't have the work to show for it yeah you need you need something to show so well he I says he if...
1: co-directed a short film and he co-directed a documentary or he directed okay. a documentary
3: I mean, yeah, that's something I mean. But yeah, if you should, you should definitely try to make something there. I mean, you know, look at this might be a bad example because he's not the best filmmaker, but look at Kevin Smith. I mean, he worked entirely out of New Jersey. And as we all know, New Jersey is a shithole, but he made it. So, you know, you, you, you never know.
1: <laughs> so Chris has spoken, make something in your own neck of the woods and then try to uh, move your life out to, to uh, Southern California and see uh, if you can make it there. Uh, I would even say, you know, give yourself an amount of time, like, you know, give yourself a year or two. And if you can't, then move back. Uh, You know, I'm sure you're young at this point, so you have some time. Uh, But uh, the Advice Corner theme song was created by Love You Wally. Uh, you can write in your emails to the advice corner at peter at slash com, Or if you want to send questions in for the mailbag, which doesn't have to be about life advice, you can send them to peter at slash com. And uh, you can find all the stories we talked about on today's podcast on slash com, linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast slash daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please uh, go to our iTunes page. Give us a five star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. All right. Wait, 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 Chris. You didn't you, you didn't call the guy that uh that was scared of ghosts a wuss. Didn't I don't know. Have... Ah, uh,
3: that was that was an off air thing. I don't want to be mean unless you're gonna include this in the show. In which case, I apologize, sir. I don't really think you're a wuss. I was just kidding. Oh, okay. I was scared of I was scared of ghosts too. There's there's some scary stuff in ghosts. Like, the part where he gets killed, he has this, like, hallucination where he's in bed with a statue, and it's terrifying. It's a terrifying scene. So I understand where this, this person is coming from.
1: <laughs> Way to backpedal. pedal. <laughs> <laughs>